So Ukraine, of course, but not very much Ukraine. In part because it's hard to know what to say. In part because it's hard to know what we know. And in part, let's be perfectly honest, because it's just too depressing. I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So like I say, this will be, I think, a relatively short podcast. And yeah, in part it is exactly as I said in the intro, that one of the issues is, yes, of course, we can talk about how we got to this current miserable state and quite what the the turn in Putin is, that he's turned from someone relatively risk-averse, albeit aggressive, into someone who clearly is willing to make one massive and I think, frankly, disastrous gamble. And as I said in other places, I really think that in some ways this has pretty much doomed Russia to a kind of rerun, a reboot of Brezhnevism, at least for a while, assuming that Putin, shall we say, survives this particular crisis. And I'll return to that parallel at the very end of this podcast. But when we come to the conflict itself, there's still so little true information that we have at our disposal. You know, we know where the Russians haven't managed to get. We have all kinds of patchy data points one way or the other. But the thing is that these are very early days and the Russians clearly have been acting in some ways with a certain degree of restraint, not because they're nice people, but precisely because they clearly were thinking that the kind of massive and indiscriminate destruction that their usual military approach would involve would actually not go down well in the West, It would not go down well in Ukraine and thus get in the way of any kind of future political settlement if they're still dreaming of this idea of being able to impose a quizzling regime in Kiev, but also not go down well at home, which more anon. However, I think, unfortunately, as Putin is finding himself foiled, he is going to double down. I mean, what else can he do? So unfortunately, I think it's going to get worse. But we shall have to see. And I deeply, deeply hope that I'm wrong. So instead, rather than trying to pontificate about a war that we still don't really know much about, I really just wanted to address a few specific issues, largely in response to questions from patrons. Because, yes, my esteemed patrons deserve answers. Let me start with the most recent development, and I'm recording this on the evening of Sunday the 27th of February, which is the rather alarming news that Putin had ordered Defence Minister Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Gerasimov to bring the nuclear forces, what well, the, the deterrence forces as they're called, to the next stage of readiness. This sounds alarming and I can perfectly understand why, you know, with blistering speed I was getting requests from various patrons to basically tell me tell them what I thought about it. Now yeah, I mean to be honest, anything that has that particular N word in it nuclear inevitably is scary and that's I'm suspecting pretty much the idea. What we should realize is 
Russia has four stages of nuclear readiness. Constant, which is the kind of steady state, lowest level. Elevated, danger, and full. Now, what's happened is that the readiness level has been moved from constant to elevated. In other words, from the bottom to the next to bottom. Now, that doesn't really mean very much. I mean, what it actually means is, under normal peacetime settings, i.e. during constant, the National Command Authority actually cannot transmit a launch order. I really don't know exactly how it works, but there is some kind of disconnect. I don't know if it's a physical firewall or whatever else. So you couldn't have an accidental launch. What has happened is when it goes to elevated, in a way that, that connection is made. So theoretically, the launch commands can be made. However, that's a very different thing from actually moving to the level where you start to get targeting data distributed and such like. So it is not meaningless, but I think its meaning is very much one of signaling. I mean, think about how often things like the impending um, cutoff from the SWIFT interbank communications network have been described as nuclear weapons against the Russian economy. Well, the point is, Putin doesn't really have the same kind of equivalent, except, of course, for turning off the gas and oil, which would also immediately have terrible negative financial implications for Russia itself. So in some ways, he's he's fighting one kind of nuclear threat with another. I think we are fortunately a long, long way away from any kind of uh, serious danger of uh, you know, a nuclear weapon being launched. But in these circumstances, these kind of heightened conditions, I mean, who honestly can, can be sure? And I must say, I think it's actually a very alarming sign of Putin's, and really it is, it is Putin, not sort of the Kremlin or really all the Russian government, but Putin's willingness to take chances in a way that he and pretty much every regime wouldn't have in the past. There really is something changing. I mean, there's these rumours about the fact that he's ill or whatever. I mean, I, I, I honestly don't know especially because the rumours tend to come from one particular individual who kind of predicts this pretty much on a six-monthly basis. But it does feel like, you know, the old man really is in a hurry. And one thing that interests me is countries like China, on whom clearly Russia must now increasingly depend as it's slammed with various forms of economic warfare. Well, I wonder how they feel about this kind of prospect. I mean, it's one thing to feel you have an ally pushing back against American unipolarity and the essential uh, northern bias, shall we say, northern hemisphere bias of the global system. But on the other hand, when you start to find that you are metaphorically in bed with an international pariah, I mean, that might be rather more alarming. I mean, the Russians are acting in a way that is closer to North Korea, quite frankly, than uh, a proper modern state, especially one that claims to be a sort of an upholder of the international order. So hopefully this is just kind of cosplaying madness. This is uh, Nixon's madman uh, strategy taken to the nth degree. The trouble is that the current version of Putin, I think, is rather better at playing that role. It does leave us all guessing. When we come to signalling, though, I mean, obviously, this is where the sanctions really are about to hit. And I think, you know, we're going we're to have to see just what kind of economic damage it does. Again, this is it. for some, it'll be temporary and passing. For others, it will be absolutely devastating. I'm not an economist. I don't know. And I have a suspicion that many economists don't really know. We haven't seen this kind of scale of economic warfare 
against a country that is so engaged within the global economic system before. So, you know, it's going to be one for the textbooks, but in the meantime, it'll probably be a bumpy ride. Of course, at the same time, there are calls saying, oh, this isn't enough. Economic warfare is basically the warfare of rich cowards, which, you know, there is a point there. But anyway, it doesn't necessarily mean I think, uh, I, I think it should change. Maybe I too am a, well, not rich, but a coward. And that more should be done. And really, I just want to dwell on one that continues to be doing the rounds that I think we really need to, to, to knock on the head. The idea of a no-fly zone. I mean, it's entirely understandable, given the degree to which, interestingly, the Russians have failed to take fullest advantage of what should have been a real superiority in air power. I mean, they, amongst the many mystifying blunders has been their incapacity to neutralise Ukrainian air defence and even the Ukrainian capacity to still have planes in the sky. But anyway, for whatever reason, broadly speaking, the Russians still have the preponderance of power in, in the air. And therefore, there's some people, oh, no, we, we, we must prevent that. We must deny it by creating a no-fly zone. A no-fly zone, and my apologies to all of you who know it, a no-fly zone is not a magical field that automatically forces all planes and choppers to stay on the ground. A no-fly zone is simply a way of saying, we will shoot down any plane in this area. And I think people don't fully understand that what they're talking about is that NATO aircraft ought to be lofted and be going after Russian aircraft, and in closer to the border areas, obviously NATO ground-based air defence systems as well. If we do that, we are declaring war. Let's just be absolutely clear about that. It will mean NATO pilots going nose to nose with Russian pilots. It will mean Russians being killed by NATO missiles and guns. And it will mean that NATO pilots are going to be killed by Russian missiles and guns too. It may be that we're actually just willing to, to do that. But if we are going to do that, let's be absolutely clear about what it is. And frankly, at the same time, let's also start preparing for the inevitable expansion. Because if we start doing that, then I cannot believe that, honestly, the Russians would not be launching non-nuclear missiles, for example, at the air bases from which the NATO planes are being launched. And just generally, this, this would be the expansion in, in a very dangerous thing. So look, let's by all means look at what we can do beyond just simply economic means. And there's a lot more to be done in terms of, of politics and such like. There's things we can do even with, with, with cyber. We can do it on other flanks. But let's not have loose talk about no-fly zones as if they are some kind of magical solution. And by the way, speaking of no-fly zones, I can understand the Western temptation to ban Aeroflot, ban flights from Russia and so forth. As long as I hope these people realise that what that does mean is that Russians who are trying the hell to get out because they're opposed to what's going on, because they're scared of what's going on, because they fear the increasingly authoritarian approach of, of the regime. I mean, I, th th there's talk now of just simply being involved with, you know, providing assistance and guidance and consultancy to, to Western institutions might well have consequences, whatever that means. Uh, it means that actually their options begin to become a lot more limited. I think it, it's very easy to get caught up in the enthusiasm of it. The, oh, well, let's, let's ban this, let's close that down. 
but we need to be thinking who these actually going to affect and are they really going to cause any kind of pressure on the Kremlin? In this case, I think not. Anyway, that's just me. Time now for a quick break and then I'll look at the question of morale. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. And the final kind of broad issue that I wanted to address is the issue of Russian morale. And I think this is one of the most fascinating, telling, and I would actually say, when it comes to when we're looking at the the Russian situation, encouraging signs. The fact that it's very, very hard outside of those people who are, shall we say, the professional cheerleaders of the Putin machine. It's very hard to find any real enthusiasm. And that's on on pretty much every level. One can look at, for example, the commentators who are currently being wheeled out in a sudden and belated uh, operation to try and tell the Russians why this is a, a wonderful and necessary war. And it's worth noting the extent to which actually the Putin regime also managed to shoot itself in the foot here as well. And actually, there's a whole there's a whole barrage of shots in the feet on this issue, but we'll we'll come to them in turn. By essentially not telling anyone outside the security apparatus that there was a definite plan for war, a definite intention for war, until right up at the last minute. I mean, most Russian officials found out about this the same time we did. They might have thought that they were maintaining operational security, but as we've seen from the various intelligence leaks, controlled leaks, shall we say, actually Western intelligence had a much, much better idea of what was going on than, obviously, most pundits, myself included, but also a much, much better idea than Russian officials. And what this meant was, of course, that there wasn't the kind of long preparation that one might have expected. So instead, they're having to scramble. And the striking thing is the degree to which they're having to rely to a large extent on what might be considered the B or C or D list of the Russian commentariat. I'm not talking about the employed propagandists like Dmitry Kiselyov, the uh, jazz-handed pundit who has his particularly toxic uh, Sunday evening show. But I'm talking about the other people who crop up in the newspapers and so forth or are wheeled out precisely in those kind of TV shows. The usual kinds of talking heads, the usual kind of op-ed contributors who we'd expect to see, even ones who are actually you know, much more on the hawkish side of things, so far at least... I can't help but notice that they haven't been in the papers. And again, maybe I'm I'm wrong here, but my suspicion is that for a lot of them, this is so stupid, so embarrassing, quite frankly, and so extreme and so dangerous, that they really don't want to basically get incriminated in it. So again, I think you know this is an interesting sign that even a lot of hawks are actually quite cautious about what's going on. Moving on just from, from that sort of thing, I mean, it's clear that there is you know, massive and heartwarming uh, discontent about it. You know, what we've got so far, I think, is over 3,000 people who have been listed, recorded as having been arrested for doing some kind of anti-war protest or other. And look, 
it, particularly in, in, in the sort of Twitter commentary, some people are saying, well, you know, until millions of people are marching in the streets, the Russians are still um, implicated in this. Well, I would flatly disagree with that. It's been a long time since any Russian elections have been anything even vaguely fair. It's clear in the last elections that really United Russia was getting maybe 30%, 30 to 35% of the actual vote. And actually, it's not at all easy to know how, how, you, how you really respond to this. I mean, the, the security forces are out in force, and force is what they're using. People are being arrested within seconds, for example, of unfurling banners and so forth. And being arrested in Russia is a pretty damn serious event. It may well cost you your job. It may well cost you your um, livelihood. It may well cost you your family. It may well also just simply lead to a damn good kicking in, in, in the police cells. You know, this is, this is the realities of protesting in an authoritarian regime. And I think that for every one person who's willing to go out there on the streets... And one wonders, you know, how, how many of us would do that, knowing almost certainly what's going to happen to us? There are so many more who are much more quietly demonstrating their, their discontent. With a war whose purpose they don't really see, it's very hard to believe that this is a war for denazification of a country with a Jewish president. And for whom, frankly, these people regard the Ukrainians as their you know, brethren, their cousins, and certainly not their enemies. So, I mean, I think this is something that really is deeply delegitimizing for the regime. And look, in the short term, the regime doesn't care. It doesn't have to worry about that. But on the other hand, in the longer term, it really will matter. And it's not just people in the street. Obviously, there's the oligarch class that doesn't like what's going on, doesn't like what's happening to their businesses and their chances to enjoy their swanky lifestyle. Already, for example, Ali Pasca seems to have been making vague noises that, in fact, the war is not a good thing. But beyond that, because let's face it, the oligarchs don't actually have much power. Let's look at the security apparatus. Let's look at the soldiers who are actually fighting this war. It's quite clear and quite fascinating how we're already getting signs of a distinct lack of enthusiasm amongst them. Cases in which they're clearly bemused at finding themselves being harangued by Ukrainians, presumably because they've been told they were off to go and liberate them from those nasty neo-Nazi stooges of the Americans and such like. There's stories, and we don't know it's for certain, but it, it, it's not inconceivable, I think, that while clearly the lack of fuel, which has obviously been an obstacle for a lot of Russian forces getting where they're meant to be getting, is because of logistical mess-ups or the fact that the Ukrainians rather smartly have been targeting fuel supplies. But it also reflects the fact that in some cases soldiers deliberately uh, ditch their fuel, drain their tanks, because the last thing they want to do is to get to, say, Kiev and start in engaging in, in, in the combat. So I think that's something which we're going to, again, be worth watching. It's important not to push this too far. I don't think we're yet at the point of mutinies and the like. But of course, if this gets to become much more of a meat grinder, then as the Russians, as they already are, start trying to lean on conscripts to get them to voluntarily sign up so they're willing to go, by Russian law they can't go outside the Russian country except as volunteers, as we get reservists being called up more and more, and already that's been happening, that's more likely the point where we might actually begin to see some definite resistance. To say nothing of, of course, how people are going to respond when the casualties start coming back. 
at the moment, the, there is this quite chilling information that suggests that the Russians are travelling with mobile field incinerators to burn bodies. I, I, I don't know. I mean, God, I would like to believe that that's not true. I wish I absolutely could believe it was not true. But the point is that you can burn a cadaver, you cannot burn a memory. There will be people who are thinking, well, hang on, where is my son? Where is my brother? Where is my husband? And in due course, this will come out. And I must admit, this is, to me, something that will actually build up an even more powerful head of steam. I remember, remember I, I did my PhD on, on the Soviet-Afghan war, and the the moral and political power of the Committee of Soldiers' Mothers, and just simply the, the sheer vigour and venom that outraged Russian mothers and grandmothers can deploy really should never, ever be understated. And again, I mean, it, all of these things that would seem to suggest a regime so extraordinarily out of touch with its own people. So we shall have to see. And particularly given the fact that, as, again, the Ukrainians played a blinder in terms of their soft power slash PR slash propaganda campaign, with, for example, their willingness to allow Russian prisoners of war to contact their families. I mean, A, that's a very, very humane gesture. But B, it's also actually a phenomenally powerful way of undermining the information control structures of the Kremlin that is desperately trying to claim that... I mean, I think they, they, they have so far, they have admitted one casualty. I mean, for God's sake, one casualty. Here's another point. Putin clearly likes to think of himself as being a bit like Yuri Andropov, the ex-KGB chief who turned general secretary. And I've said in, in past podcasts and elsewhere how I don't think Andropov for a moment would see that particular parallel. One of the things about Andropov, one of the key things about Andropov, who I'm not saying for a moment was a nice man, he had dissidents put in psychiatric hospitals and such like, but one of the things that I think for, the, for, the, for a man of his time in that particular environment was very, very telling is that he really did demand to know the truth of what was going on and he wouldn't hide behind the same comforting bromides that the rest of the Politburo allowed themselves to be fed. You know, he was actually very ruthless with himself, just as he was ruthless with everyone who crossed him. And one of the interesting things about the Andropov era is, first of all, the crime rate apparently zoomed up. Did it actually go up? No, it didn't. It's because for so long it had been underreported successively. And, and Andropov said, no, this is, this is ridiculous. We actually have to recognise what the real crime rate is. Otherwise, we can't really understand what is going on and deal with it. So you have an apparent increase in crime, but that's just simply an adjustment, bringing it up to the real level. But the second thing is what's interesting is, is the degree to which, even in these very, very early days of the war in Afghanistan, under Andropov, you started to have the real recognition that you could not pretend there was no war going on. Remember, when, when the Soviet troops rolled into Afghanistan uh, in Christmas 1979, it was not announced at all. There was actually almost a kind of certain dark humour to it. There was just a little, almost, I don't know, one, two column inches in Krasnaya Zvezda, the army newspaper, simply saying that a, a new page has opened in the history of Russian-Afghan relations. 
which is one particularly innovative way of describing having sent in commandos to assassinate the head of state, replaced him with your own puppet and invaded. But anyway, so be it. And then they basically tried to pretend that there was no war, because in part they thought it was going to be an essentially bloodless, brief operation. But of course it wasn't. Are we already beginning to see the parallels now? And the problem that the Soviet system had is at first fine you you have absolute control of the information space everyone is meant to just simply be listening to you know your own state-controlled media and such like even if they did have the little shortwave radio sets to listen to bbc or radio free europe radio liberty but the point is particularly as more and more people came back or didn't come back it became harder and harder to hold the line so under andropov we started to see a slight modulation of the line They couldn't yet admit that there was a full-scale war going on. Instead, what we heard, what Soviet citizens heard, was that bandits, not rebels, bandits, would attack Russian and Afghan forces when they were on joint military exercises. And, of course, the Soviets would deliver a suitable and devastating rebuff. So it was a way of just trying to edge towards the fact that, yes, there, there there was a war going on. And in fact, the first real article that looked at the fact that there were veterans coming home scarred mentally and physically, it came out under Andropov's successor, Chernyenka. But the point is, the process to actually approve it had happened under Andropov. So there was an awareness that if you have information control, you can lie for a bit, but only for so long, and above all, you can't when people have alternative means of checking your lies. In this particular case, it was the boys coming home or not coming home. Well, in today's Russia, it will be that, but it will also still be all the numerous channels of social media and maybe phone calls coming in from Ukraine, which will give Russians that alternative yardstick whereby to measure Uh, the uh, failings, quite frankly, of the Putin regime, to be honest with them. This is not a minor issue. This this is going to be a very big issue. And so if I'm going to just conclude, what do I think is going to happen in in terms of what will happen to Russia? I I have no idea what will happen in Ukraine. I don't believe that Putin will win, but I don't know how long, how ugly and how partial any kind of settlement may be, and whether or not actually we we end up getting some kind of partition or similar. Who knows? But in terms of what's going to happen to Russia, I do feel with deep, deep depression that what is happening is Russia is going to be forced, dragged, pushed back into essentially a modern-day reboot of the Brezhnev franchise. That under the impact of economic sanctions, a growing isolation, both brought about by the West, but also brought about by the Kremlin, as sanctions meet counter sanctions and so forth, that locks Russians, as far as the Kremlin can get, out of Western cultural mainstreams. An economy grinding down and down, not collapsing, I would imagine, again, I could be wrong, but rather actually just simply to succumbing more and more to stagnation, starved of the kind of credits and technology it would need to modernise, to adapt, to increase productivity, and to cope with the decarbonisation era. With the growing legitimacy crisis that inevitably will, will develop, Putin 
We'll do what really we're already seeing. He will reign from a throne of bayonets. There will be less and less attempt to kind of maintain a facade of legitimacy and a vestige of constitutionalism. And instead, this will be a police state authoritarianism for as long as Putin is around. So that's not exactly a particularly uplifting thought, except for one thing. And if I can, I always like to leave a little bit of hope twinkling at the end. Brezhnevism led to Andropov, the smart, ruthless conservative, but who realised that actually what this system needed to survive was serious reform, who in a way forced reform onto the political agenda where it hadn't been before, and also constructed the reform coalition, the most senior one of which was Mikhail Gorbachev, who actually then tried to reform the system. Now, arguably, that reform is still waiting to happen. It was, for all kinds of reasons, partial and all but stillborn. Well, maybe a reboot of Brezhnevism will, in due course, allow for another chance at actually having that proper constitutional, democratic, rule-of-law reform that clearly Russians want. After all, one of the things that this war, and you know, also I have to say, take my hat off to President Zelensky, who really has risen to the challenge quite admirably, but one of the things about this war is absolutely it is the crucible from which a genuine Ukraine is at last emerging. Ukraine, which time and time again since 1991, has never quite really managed to become that kind of unified society that it really wanted to be and needed to be. But, well, Putin demonstrated he is indeed the, the founding patron saint of modern Ukraine. Well, likewise, in some ways, that Ukraine can return the favour and help generate the kind of reform that Russia ultimately needs. That is my best attempt at bringing a little bit of, as I say, glimmering hope to what are, after all, very dark times. Thanks very much and take care. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.